Nick, I can't believe COVID is still going on. And we also have something called the Delta variant that is basically making all of our numbers go back up again. It's really been a crazy year and a half. I know. And I think one of the things that I'm really happy for is that as I'm like standing in the ante room, getting ready to get all the carb on and going into a room and thinking about like, what do I need to do for this pregnant patient? I have the OBG project resource literally in my pocket on my phone that I can scroll through quickly before I have to put it down and get the gloves on. One of the great things about the OBG project is that you can also subscribe to OBG First, which allows you to create your own bookshelf. It allows you to have all those handy resources right where you want them instead of having to scroll through everything. Chief residents can actually get a free year of OBG First by heading over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, and checking out the sidebar. Residents in general can also get access to the resident core curriculum for absolutely free. Again, head over to our website, check out the sidebar. You can get all of these resources from the awesome folks at the OBG Project for absolutely free. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. All right. So everyone, today we have with us a very special guest. We have with us Dr. David Abel, who is an assistant professor from the Department of OBGYN and Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. And he is going to be talking to us today about von Willebrand's disease. So welcome, Dr. Abel. Oh, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So Dr. Abel, you outlined some learning objectives for us today that we're going to start off with just familiarizing ourselves with what von Willebrand disease is. We're going to touch a bit on how it's diagnosed We'll discuss the gynecologic patient and von Willebrand's disease, and then mostly focus on the obstetric patient, including implications for antepartum, intrapartum, and postpartum care. So I think I'm really excited to hear from you exactly. Let's just start with something simple of what exactly is von Willebrand's disease? Well, as the name implies, uh, von Willebrand disease was first described in 1926 by Eric von Willebrand, who was a Finnish pediatrician. Von Willebrand disease is the most common inherited bleeding disorder, and it accounts for about 80 to 85% of all bleeding disorders. The estimated prevalence of Von Willebrand disease is about 1 in 10,000, but it may actually be as high as 1 to 2% in the general population. Now, with respect to our patients that we're interested in, and women with heavy menstrual bleeding, the prevalence appears to be greater, ranging from about 5 to about 24%. Now, what is von Willebrand factor? Well, it's a large glycoprotein that's encoded by a gene on chromosome 12, and it's made both in endothelial cells and megakarrier sites, which are essentially the precursors for platelets. It is assembled from identical subunits into multimers, where essentially are strings of subunits that vary in size. So you'll often hear von Willebrand factor described as a large multimeric glycoprotein. And it really has two main functions. One is that it is necessary for the normal adhesion of platelets to sites of injured endothelium. And it also serves as a carrier for factor eight that protects it from proteolysis, which actually increases the half-life of factor eight. So when vascular injury occurs, 
this large multimeric protein on coils, which results in platelet adhesion, activation, and aggregation. But Wilbrandt disease actually comes in several flavors, if you will, or types that represent both a quantitative and or a qualitative defect of von Wilbrandt factor. By far and away, type one is the one that you will see the most, and it accounts for 70 to 80% of cases and is characterized by a partial quantitative deficiency of both von Willebrand factor and factor eight. And this reduction in von Willebrand factor is usually mild to moderate. Now, the other less common types include type two, which accounts for 10 to 30% of cases and represents a quantitative reduction in von Willebrand factor. And to confuse you even more, uh, there are four subtypes. A, B, M, and N. I just want to very uh, briefly bring up type 2 von Willebrand disease because in this condition, patients may present with thrombocytopenia during pregnancy. So although it is not common, you know, as you go through your differential for thrombocytopenia during pregnancy, certainly things like gestational thrombocytopenia is going to be at the top of your list. Then other things you start thinking about, preeclampsia, ITP, lupus, but you can kind of keep type two von Willebrand disease on your radar, just kind of as an uncommon cause, but still in your differential. Type three von Willebrand disease is the least common type and accounts for only one to about 5% of cases, but it is the most severe, characterized by the virtual absence of von Willebrand factor. Now, in terms of inheritance patterns, von Willebrand disease is usually inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion. So thus we can counsel our patients that their baby has a 50% chance of inheriting this condition. This has implications as we'll discuss for both the intrapartum and postpartum period. And just as a note, rarely von Willebrand disease is inherited as an autosomal recessive condition, namely in type three and in some cases of type two. So Dr. Abel, I think you know one of the things that we get concerned about, right, is how do we recognize this? So what are the symptoms of von Willebrand's and how do we diagnose it? Uh, in terms of symptoms, Faye, one of the things that I read that really kind of summarized things nicely was the CDC report that actually surveyed 75 women that were enrolled in a U.S. hemophilia treatment center. And they noted that the most common bleeding symptoms were bruising, epistaxis, bleeding after injury, surgery or tooth extraction, postpartum bleeding, and interestingly, menorrhagia was the most commonly reported uh, symptom. Uh, in addition to mucocutaneous and soft tissue bleeding, joint and muscle bleeding can also occur. And the severity of bleeding is usually related to the degree of von Willebrand factor and factor eight deficiency. Now, in terms of diagnosis, the initial workup usually consists of nonspecific tests, such as a CBC, PT, PTT, and fibrinogen, which are all helpful in excluding a clotting factor deficiency. Now, keep in mind that PTT may be normal in patients with von Willebrand's disease. And again, if thrombocytopenia is detected, as we discussed, type 2B von Willebrand disease is in that differential. The next steps are tests that are specific for von Willebrand disease. And these really are essentially three. The first is the von Willebrand factor antigen that measures the quantity of von Willebrand factor protein in the plasma. The second is the factor eight assay that measures factor eight activity, which essentially is a surrogate marker for the activity of von Willebrand factor. 
Lastly is another measurement of von Willebrand factor activity, which is a functional assay that measures the interaction between von Willebrand and platelets. Now, historically, this was measured by the von Willebrand factor Ristocetin cofactor activity assay that many of you may have seen. Um, I would add that you know, more recently, new assays have been developed that assess the von Willebrand factor platelet interaction with a little bit of a greater precision and sensitivity. And this is where consultation with your hematology colleagues will be really helpful with diagnostic testing and interpretation of results. Um, I should add that the bleeding time is a test that used to be considered a screening test for von Willebrand disease, but most no longer really use this. It's um, poorly reducible, has a lack of predictive value, and a low sensitivity and specificity. It was really helpful to go back over those things and like lighting up some old neurons from medical school with those tests for von Willebrand's disease. I guess kind of where I want to take our conversation to now is that no, we should, I guess, ask why knowing about von Willebrand disease matters, or you know, maybe just from the gynecologic perspective. I know you mentioned earlier that menorrhagia is one of the biggest presenting complaints for folks with von Willebrand's disease, but what else should we know about from that gynecology perspective? Yeah. So, you know, as we said, there is an association between von Willebrand disease and heavy menstrual bleeding, but remember that it goes both ways. So in other words, in women with von Willebrand disease, there is a high prevalence of heavy menstrual bleeding, but also among women with heavy menstrual bleeding, von Willebrand disease is found to be the etiology ranges anywhere from 5 to 20%. Now, many treatment options are available for women with von Willebrand disease and heavy menstrual bleeding, as you can imagine, hormonal and non-hormonal therapies. Hormonal treatments include the levonorgestrel releasing IUD, the progestin implant, and progestin-only pills. Uh, the association of von Willebrand disease with other gynecologic problems, such as ovarian cysts, endometriosis, and leiomyomas, is more unclear. Um, now, you know, speaking as people who are going into MFM, I, of course, you know, want to bring this conversation back to obstetrics. So how can we you know, focus in terms of von Willebrand's disease in the obstetric patients. So can we talk about how we would divide up management, for example, in like antepartum, intrapartum, and postpartum patients? Uh, well, let's get back to a little bit of physiology first um, and remember some of the physiologic changes during pregnancy as they pertain to von Willebrand disease. So recall that both von Willebrand factor and factor eight levels increase during pregnancy always usually a good question on CREOGS. Um, and that increase usually starts in the second trimester and peaks in the third trimester. The increase in both von Willebrand factor and factor eight levels usually reduces the likelihood that our patients warrant treatment during the antepartum, intrapartum, or even postpartum, postpartum period. Although technically, if a patient was previously undiagnosed, the increase in levels during pregnancy may obscure the diagnosis because you might get a normal level and not even think that that patient had von Willebrand disease to begin with. Now, in the case of the severe and uncommon type 3 von Willebrand disease, both von Willebrand factor and factor 8 levels actually do not increase during pregnancy. But again, as we said, it's going to be pretty uncommon um, to encounter a, a patient with type 3 von Willebrand disease, as most of the patients you'll see will have type 1 von Willebrand disease. Now, in general, women with baseline levels of von Willebrand factor and factor eight levels of greater than 30, and this is usually 
measured in IUs per deciliter that suggest type 1 von Willebrand disease usually have a high likelihood to achieve normal levels by the end of pregnancy due to the physiologic increase. Now, what's important is, is while these levels rise during pregnancy, median levels in women with von Willebrand disease still remain below the levels of women who actually don't have von Willebrand disease and fall rapidly after delivery. And I think that rapid decrease is very important to keep in mind. Um, some more recent data has actually shown that these levels start to approach baseline by one week postpartum and fully reach baseline by three weeks postpartum. And that's why we have to really be careful in how we take care of these patients in the postpartum period as we'll get to. Now, in terms of some of the complications of von Willebrand disease during pregnancy, include antepartum bleeding, postpartum hemorrhage, and perineal hematoma, which are all increased anywhere from two to tenfold, depending upon what you read. Not only is there an increased risk of both primary postpartum hemorrhage, the risk of delayed postpartum hemorrhage, and remember we define that as bleeding that occurs after 24 hours post-delivery, that risk of delayed postpartum hemorrhage is also increased. There was one review, in fact, that suggested that overall, 16 to 29% of women with von Willebrand disease will have postpartum hemorrhage within the first 24 hours of delivery, and up to 29% of women will experience delayed postpartum bleeding. And bleeding is frequently reported to occur more than two to three weeks postpartum. Now, it's unclear in terms of other complications if there's an increased risk of spontaneous abortion in patients with von Willebrand disease. But you know, keep in mind also that early in pregnancy, factor eight levels, they haven't really risen um, yet. So patients with von Willebrand disease experiencing a first trimester loss may actually have uh, heavy, heavy bleeding. Now, in terms of when you're actually seeing a patient, and let's say you're seeing them as a consult at the beginning, um, whether you're in resident clinic or MFM fellow, uh, and what do you do first? Well, typically a factor eight and von Willebrand factor risk to seat and cofactor activity assay are checked early in pregnancy and again in the third trimester. Again, like I mentioned earlier, hematology consultation is always prudent and help you decide if any other additional testing is needed as newer assays may be assessed instead of the risk to seat and cofactor activity assay. Women with type 1 von Willebrand disease with factor of 8 and risk of seat and cofactor activity levels less than 50 IUs per deciliter and no history of severe bleeding really don't require any special treatment at the time of delivery. So I think that's kind of a good number to keep in mind that those levels, if they're greater than 50, usually don't require any special treatment. It doesn't mean that they're not at risk of bleeding postpartum because remember, as I said, these levels tend to... Uh, fall precipitously after delivery, but at least in the intrapartum period, those patients that have levels over 50, and most patients due to the physiologic rise in these levels will achieve levels greater than 50. So they don't really need any special treatment in the intrapartum period. And because of that, uh, many would say that these patients with type one with levels over 50 could often be cared for by the general obstetrician in the community setting, assuming that provider is comfortable and hematology is available if needed. Now, assuming that, again, the patient has type 1 von Willebrand disease, but let's say the levels are less than 50 IUs per deciliter, then that increases the risk of that patient having hemorrhagic complications 
like delayed postpartum hemorrhage, as we discussed. So these patients usually require treatment close to delivery or after cord clamping. And there really is some disagreement among experts about the first line treatment and when it should be administered. So the classic teaching that you'll usually read in books or in articles is to administer DDAVP. And again, whether it's administered late in the second stage or after cord clamping is a little bit of a debate. Recall that DDAVP, again, taking you back, stands for 1-D-amino-AD-arginine vasopressin, and it's a synthetic derivative of the antidiuretic hormone arginine vasopressin. So DDAVP causes release of von Willebrand factor that's been stored in secretory granules within the endometrium, in the endothelium, excuse me. So this is how DDAVP works. It helps to release that von Willebrand factor. And this results in both von Willebrand factor and factor eight levels three to five times um, above the basal levels within 30 to 60 minutes. DDAVP is usually pretty effective in patients with type one von Willebrand disease with baseline von Willebrand factor and factor eight levels greater than 10 IU per deciliter. The recommended dose just for interest of DDAVP is even though it's given intranasally for a lot of patients will take intranasal DDEVP prior to their menses if they have heavy menses. But for the intrapartum period, the dose is IV and it's typically 0.3 micrograms per kilogram IV given over 30 minutes or 300 micrograms can be given intranasally. And the onset of action is pretty quick for DDEVP, about 15 to 30 minutes. Some people recommend a test dose of DDAVP may be given to determine a patient's response by measuring the von Willebrand factor, Ristocetin cofactor level um, prior to administration, and then at one and four hours after administering the DDAVP. And as I said, the timing of when to give the DDAVP, there's some difference of opinion here, whether it should be given um, at the time of cord clamping or in the second stage. But because the peak effect is 1.5 to two hours after administration, it may be more beneficial if it's administered during the second stage of labor or immediately before cesarean delivery rather than after cord clamping. Now, here's a little bit of the debate about whether DDAVP should be first line. Recall that the main risk associated with DDAVP is water retention. And this could lead to hyponatremia and even seizures in some cases. Um, so this careful monitoring of fluid status is really important in the postpartum period. But sometimes in all honesty, it's really hard to fluid restrict someone in the postpartum period. Um, there's recommendations that fluid uh, restrictions should be up to less than one liter in, the in, in 24 hours following DDAVP administration. So because um, of the difficulty with this fluid restriction in the postpartum period and this risk of water intoxication that could lead to hyponatremia and seizures, Many experts do not recommend DDAVP as a first-line treatment. And in fact, one of our hematologists um, where I work at OHSU um, is one of those that does not recommend DDAVP as a first line. So instead, uh, the other alternatives for a first-line treatment are plasma-derived von Willebrand factor concentrates. And again, these uh, essentially come in three flavors, if you will. Plasma-derived von Willebrand factor concentrate that contains von Willebrand factor alone without any factor eight. 
The second is a recombinant von Willebrand factor concentrate that again contains only von Willebrand factor without factor eight. And the third is a plasma derived concentrate that contains both von Willebrand factor and factor eight. So the decision regarding which one of these to use is gonna depend a little bit on the levels of both the von Willebrand factor and factor eight, what's available in your hospital and input from our hematology colleagues. Now, one thing that's important is regional anesthesia here. There really isn't a consensus on levels that are safe for regional anesthesia, but if levels are greater than 50 IUs per deciliter and assuming a normal platelet count, regional anesthesia is usually considered reasonable. Recent evidence-based guidelines from the American Society of Hematology, the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis, the National Hemophilia Foundation, and the World Federation of Hemophilia have been published. I included these, uh, and I think you guys are going to put that on your website. And with regards to renal anesthesia, um, these uh, foundations and societies uh, recommend von Willebrand factor activity levels should be maintained at 50 IUs per deciliter while the epidural is in place and for at least six hours after removal. So there's a little kind of a, a take on antepartum, intrapartum, and postpartum management. Fabulous. Yeah, we'll definitely include that as sort of just like a baseline or generalities of therapy in the intrapartum postpartum period on the website, um, as well as the guidelines with respect to regional anesthesia, because um, I'm sure that these things vary a little bit, as you mentioned, between institutions and between hematologists. Dr. Abel, what about questions regarding mode of delivery and other issues in the postpartum period. I imagine things that might come up would include, you know, is it better to have a vaginal delivery versus a C-section? Can I control bleeding better with one way or the other? Or, you know, should we use things like scalp electrodes um, or even like patients maybe worried about procedures in the antepartum period, things like CVS or amnio? Are there guidelines that guide us in this sense? In most cases, prenatal diagnosis is not performed, so we really don't know the von Willebrand disease status of the fetus. So because of that unknown status of the fetus, it is definitely better to avoid procedures like a fetal scalp electrode and fetal scalp sampling, even though that's really not done anymore. Operative delivery is another thing that I would discourage due to the potential risk of intracranial hemorrhage. So cesarean delivery would definitely be preferred over an operative vaginal delivery. Really important to make the pediatrician aware of mom's status, because if it's a male, uh, you should definitely postpone circumcision until the baby's von Willebrand disease status can be deter uh, determined. It's a good idea to send cord blood at the time of delivery for a von Willebrand panel um, to determine the status of the newborn. Now, in the postpartum period, Recall that we discussed that uh, patients are at risk of both primary um, and delayed postpartum hemorrhage. Perineal hematomas, like we said, could be seen, and von Willebrand factor and factor eight levels can significantly decrease postpartum. And as we mentioned, return to baseline within seven to 21 days postpartum. So in the postpartum period, these levels are typically checked immediately postpartum and then periodically. And I think in terms of, well, how often, that's going to depend a little bit on consultation with your hematology uh, colleagues. Also really important to keep in mind is that um, non-steroidal analgesics should really be avoided in the postpartum period. Now, we talked a little bit about the American Society of Hematology guidelines that uh, came out this year. 
Um, and they discuss the use of tranexamic acid in the postpartum period, something that we're using more and more for postpartum hemorrhage. And administration of one milligram intravenously is something that the guidelines mentioned to be considered to be used prophylactically immediately after delivery and even continued. Uh, the 2021 guidelines discuss administering TXA for 10 to 14 days postpartum, and a typical dose is usually about one milligram three times a day. Uh, one final point that you asked about, uh, Nick, about diagnostic procedures in the antepartum period, including CVS and amniocentesis, is usually prior to these procedures, or even egg retrieval, if IVF is planned, Often, either DDAVP or von Willebrand factor concentrates can be administered immediately prior to these procedures. Well, this was really great, um, Dr. Abel. So I think that brings us to the end of our talk on von Willebrand's disease. So uh, before we end, Nick, let's go ahead and summarize. Sure thing. So Dr. Abel took us through von Willebrand's disease. Recall that that's the most common inherited bleeding disorder with several subtypes. We spent a lot of our time today talking about type 1 von Willebrand disease, which comprises the majority of cases, the type that you're most likely to encounter and manage. We discussed that von Willebrand's disease has implications both for our gynecologic and obstetric patients. For our gynecologic patients, von Willebrand's disease may be an etiology of heavy menstrual bleeding for which hormonal treatments are often used, although there are other treatments including things like DDAVP and antifibrinolytics. Typically, the OBGYN is managing these clinical issues with a hematologist. There is, however, an increase in obstetric complication in women with von Willebrand's disease, including things like postpartum hemorrhage and delayed postpartum hemorrhage. Fortunately, most women with type 1 von Willebrand disease, that is a relative von Willebrand factor deficiency, do well during pregnancy due to the physiologic increase in von Willebrand's factor and factor 8 levels. Typically, though, you use tests to assess both the factor 8 levels and the von Willebrand factor activity at the beginning of pregnancy and again sometime in the third trimester. In women with levels less than 50 IU per deciliter, the risk of bleeding complications is increased further and treatment is generally warranted. Again, this is where you're going to rope in your hematology colleagues um, to help you out with these particular situations. Treatment to help reduce bleeding complications include things like DDAVP, factor 8, and recombinant von Willebrand's factor concentrates and tranexamic acid. It's also important to remember to avoid NSAIDs in these patients postpartum. With delivery, it's recommended to avoid operative delivery and fetal scalp electrodes. Caesarean section is preferred over operative delivery due to the risk of intracranial hemorrhage for the fetus. Um, recall that the fetus typically has a 50% chance of inheriting the condition. So as part of that, not only with the intrapartum care, avoiding FSC and operative delivery, but in male babies where circumcisions planned, the pediatrician should be informed and the procedure postponed until testing can be verified. Obtaining corn blood and sending for von Willebrand panel at the time of delivery is recommended. And finally, always consider involving your hematology colleagues, particularly in patients with levels less than 50 or who have a history of severe bleeding in a prior pregnancy. Your patient may warrant transfer to another hospital that can provide that higher level of care if you or your team at your institution is not comfortable caring for these patients. Um, one last thing that we should mention, Dr. Abel is a member of an organization called the Foundation for Women's and Girls with Blood Disorders. One of his mentors from Duke University, Dr. Andrea James, has written a bunch on von Willebrand's disease in obstetrics and gynecology and started the organization. Excitingly, medical students and residents can join the Foundation for Women and Girls with Blood Disorders for absolutely free. We'll have the address on our website and how to join.
Well, this has been really great, Dr. Abel. Thank you again for coming onto the podcast and sharing with us and all of our listeners your expertise and knowledge of von Willebrand's disease. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. All right. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go onto Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any of your other favorite podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee One, on Instagram and Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, or if you love the show, head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Coffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. We'll have reading materials as well as notes, as well as the link for the Foundation for Women and Girls with Blood Disorders all on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have another question for us based on the Von Willebrands podcast today, question or a correction from any of our previous podcasts, or just want to say hello, the best way to get in touch with us is email, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 